Welcome back to Butter With That, a movies podcast where some friends from Philadelphia, or I guess outside the Philly area now, come together uh, to talk about all things movies. I am joined by my co-hosts Dave, Christine, and Sam to talk about a movie that is very special to me from a director that, uh, surprisingly, we haven't covered yet, who is definitely one of my favorite Hollywood directors. But before we get into the pick for my underrated movie, how's everyone doing? Seeing anything new? Um, I don't think there's been too many newer movies coming out, but maybe any TV shows or old favorites that folks have been going back to over the past week. So I started Elvis and only got 25 minutes into it. Oh no. I'm so sorry, Dave. I had to turn it Oh, I had to take a break. I like it's uh, an energy I don't think I've ever seen in a movie before. And usually I'm game. I think it might have just been the night because I will return to it. But like that, that is an energy, especially with Tom Hanks doing. I don't know what the fuck, but I was like, (laughs) I don't know if I can handle like two more hours of this. So. And this is, so instead of watching Elvis, I turned on a movie uh, that's called Pirates Search for Snake Island. Not to be confused with the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. This is a um, low-budge movie you can find on Tubi in which uh, a man named Brett Kelly stars, writes, and directs this film. And I would tell you, I would watch this movie every day for the rest of my life instead of having to sit through Elvis once. And once you watch Pirates Search or Hunt for Snake Island, you'll see that that's a very desperate, desperate statement. Um, But I enjoyed it. Check it out. It's on Tubi for free. Christine, did you just trigger the Big Butter blowout? I might have caused... Well, I guess we're going to talk about it. So I'm, I'm going to watch it no matter what. I just... I couldn't. Um, I'm taking deep breaths over here. It's going to be fine. Well, Christine, yeah, you sent the um, in our group chat the poster. That looks uh, like quite the film. So maybe one day we'll cover that. Please. Like, I want to talk about this movie because it is amazing. Well, um, I took a crack at a new movie that uh, just came. Well, it came out a little bit ago, but is now uh, new to streaming platforms. It's on Peacock right now. And that is Jurassic World Dominion. Not much to be said. It's I didn't I didn't care for the last one. I didn't care for this one. Uh, last time we did clones. Now we're doing bugs, and I still don't know what the hell they're thinking with this franchise. Uh, everyone turns in very tepid and uh, uh, uninspiring performances. That including the legacy original cast. So uh, on the whole, eh, it was exactly what I expected of Jurassic Park Dominion. <laughs> Can they just end it? Like, just I think this may be the end. And not to spoil anything, I won't give away much of the plot, but the inspiring message at the end of Jurassic Park Dominion is that we should learn to trust the dinosaurs? Like, the word trust. We're supposed to trust dinosaurs. 
Um, which I think is when strange. did they ever lead us astray? Never. Only, only, only the only other six movies or five movies. <laughs> Dinosaurs have always lived their truth. And we're the only monsters that can't be trusted. But fine. All right. <laughs> so I haven't been watching much. I've been weaking. Uh, weaking. Oh my God. I have been working consistently for almost two weeks. So I've really just been coming home and uh, watching The Dark Knight Rises. I always make it to uh, the part where Bane gets in the plane, which, if you know the movie, is like literally five minutes in. So I started to like fast forward to some of my favorite bits so I could like watch that and then go to sleep. Uh, but when I was home, I watched um, Walking Tall with my dad, and he was like so excited to share it with me. Uh, it's with the the rock and Johnny Knoxville and like a couple of other people, but it is so of its time period. So 2004, he really wants me to do it for the podcast. So maybe there will be a time that we can do it. Dad, I, I promise. I promise. I wrote a little paper in high school, um, not for school, just to write one uh, about Johnny Knoxville. So um, that would be fun. Oh, that's, that's cool. really sweet. <laughs> I haven't been watching I don't think any new movies, but I did catch up on House of the Dragon, episodes three and four on HBO. Been really happy with uh, the show so far. It's interesting because you can feel that it's like a little budget uh, in places, but the writing is just absolutely fantastic and characterization. So I really don't have much uh, to complain about. And since it's getting a season two, maybe then they'll expand to more like practical locations etc did you just say that something game of thrones related has a low budget it feels a little low budgety um where you can, is it well it's hbo uh, the uh, dragons uh the end of episode no spoilers at the end of episode three there's like a big kind of dragon battle that took eight months to make uh, and it's probably only on screen for like five minutes total in the whole episode, not even probably four minutes. So I think a lot of it is just the dragons take so much money and time to render. Uh, and they look generally pretty good. Um, so it's a lot of like, oh, the same kind of five interior shots. And they're using uh, the volume, which is what Disney and now other people are using, like the giant TV room that like renders spaces in like real time, digital spaces in real time. So it's really great technology but there's sometimes you're like ah this was filmed in the volume and this was filmed in the room oh and this is the one day that they could be in morocco to film the outside scene of king's landing so you can kind of feel like where they have to cut corners um and this could have flopped because everyone generally hated season eight of game of thrones so maybe with some now renewed confidence in the property um season two might just have a little more varied um, like kind of set pieces and locations instead of feeling like studio volume and then the one day they had outside. It's kind of just the feeling of it. But the writing is absolutely superb and characterization, which ultimately is kind of what matters most. So on to underrated movies. Uh, for those of you who haven't listened to the past couple weeks, uh, we hit our four-year anniversary uh, in September, which is hard to believe that we've been podcasting for four years, watched so many movies, and we're returning to um, our inaugural theme, which was underrated movies. And the film that I'm bringing today is 2007's Zodiac, 
uh, directed by David Fincher. This is one of my favorite movies. Um, definitely critically acclaimed, but in a little bit, I'll get into why I think it's underrated. And we haven't talked about David Fincher before, and he's made some really incredible movies. So I'm sure he'll come up again sometime in the future. And I'm thrilled that I can bring Zodiac as the first uh, Fincher movie we're discussing. Fincher movie that we're discussing. Have you guys seen Zodiac before? Was this anyone's first time um, watching it, or have you guys seen David Fincher Zodiac before? I have seen this movie many times before. <laughs> nice. Not many. I've seen it probably twice, two times before this. So not many, many times, um, but have seen it. Yeah, I caught this one in theaters in 07 and uh, really loved it then. And every time I've gone back, I've uh, been as riveted as the first time. So yeah, a number of times now, probably like not double digits, but it's getting up there. Awesome. So I'm really excited for this discussion. We've all seen it. But for folks who haven't seen Zodiac, let me just give a quick run through of uh, what this movie is, who's in this movie. So Zodiac was released in 2007, directed by David Fincher, who also directed Seven, uh, The Social Network. I forgot he directed The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Um, He also directed Gone Girl and then also directed and produced Mindhunter on Netflix. Uh, The screenplay was by James Vanderbilt, who wrote The Amazing Spider-Man 1 and 2 and also Independence Day Resurgence and the new Scream movie as well. So not a whole lot of hits under his belt. Some questionable movies, but... Certainly not Resurgence, yeah. (laughs) um, But I think this movie has a really fantastic screenplay, so interesting. Uh, Cinematography was by the late Harris uh, Savides. I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, He's worked with Scorsese, Gus Van Sant, uh, also worked with Fincher on the game, and he also did the opening sequence um, for Seven. So definitely a veteran handling cinematography. Uh, Zodiac has a really impressive cast uh, with Jake Gyllenhaal, Mark Ruffalo, Robert Downey Jr., Anthony Edwards, Brian Cox, Donald Logue, uh, John Carroll Lynch, and Dermot, uh, Dermot Mulroney. So kind of who's who of character actors. Dave, I think that's what you said uh, in our group chat. Yeah. and. It's also important to point out that this was pre-Iron Man. Iron Man came out in 2008, so this was um, you know, pre-Iron Man, Robert Downey Jr., which is interesting to think about in his career, because after Iron Man, everything changed for him. Um, so what is Zodiac? Uh, Zodiac is a 2007 mystery thriller based on Robert Graysmith, who's in the movie played by Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, based on his books about the Zodiac uh, killer. He was a serial killer who terrorized the San Francisco Bay Area in the late 1960s through the early 1970s. The film primarily follows Gray Smith, who's a cartoonist for the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, it also follows Chronicle crime reporter Paul Avery, played by Robert Downey Jr., and uh, San Francisco homicide detect- police homicide detectives Dave Tashi and Bill Armstrong, who are played by Ruffalo and Edwards, respectively. Um, as these men, you know, as they try to solve and figure out these brutal murders to code Zodiac's cryptic messages and also cope with not being able to catch the killer, um, who to this day, nobody knows for sure who the Zodiac killer was and it remains one of the biggest unsolved murder mysteries in American history. 
Now, why is it underrated? Uh, generally, Zodiac is, is a much lauded movie critically, but Zodiac bombed at the box office. Everybody knows <laughs> I love my box office numbers. Uh, Zodiac had a budget of roughly $70 million. It actually came in under budget uh, when it was all said and done. Uh, but it had a total box office gross of only $84.7 million globally. Uh, for context, most of David Fincher's movies are box office successes, ranging from $110 million to $350 million worldwide grosses. Mank, which was his most recent movie, uh, grossed more money at the box office, and that was a Netflix pandemic release with no North American box office. Um, that is crazy. Which is just, yeah, nuts. <laughs> Uh, while it was critically, while Zodiac critically claimed, uh, its team received pretty much no mainstream awards recognition for this film. And while the movie is seems fondly remembered in pop culture, I don't think Zodiac gets enough recognition as a true masterpiece in the mystery, thriller, and true crime genres of film. Maybe if the movie was released 10 years later, like in 2017, 2018, when kind of our modern true crime craze was in full, kind of getting into full swing, and when uh, Robert Downey Jr. and Mark Ruffalo were big Marvel movie stars, maybe Zodiac would have been kind of more of a hit, but it's not. Uh, also, Zodiac is not the most crowd-pleasing movie <laughs> that there is, like big, you know, mass audience movie appeal uh, it has a circuitous story and plot structure doesn't really glorify the murders and it has an inconclusive ending which is really important um, to the whole team and kind of the basis of the script for the movie because the mystery is generally kind of unsolved uh, and there's also a lot of dialogue uh, maybe zodiac was kind of always doomed but i think that zodiac is an absolute fantastic masterpiece in really almost every way and dare i say criminally underappreciated sorry i got thumbs down sam so that's me rambling about what is zodiac and but i want to turn it over to you guys what uh, how do you feel about this film maybe like reactions during your first screenings and kind of what was it like going back to revisit just talk to me a little bit about your thoughts on zodiac it's so interesting to see all of our definitions and how we interpret underrated because I think we all do it so differently. Like, yes, at the box office, this didn't do well, it bombed, but Zodiac is core to the true crime community and it's just assumed that you've seen it because you know you'll have conversations with people who listen to the same podcast that you do and go to the same things that you do and you're like yeah so you know that part in zodiac or you know that like blah 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 so it's just like an assumed thing that you've watched and that you can like recite and know um so I, I just think it's so funny because like maybe it was underrated then, but it like certainly in the 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 TCC, the true crime community, it's definitely not. And I think that it was interesting to me to hear that the screenwriter had done Amazing Spider-Man 1 and 2 and the second Independence Day, uh, things that are terrible, um, and that this is relatively good because he was working from real life. Honestly, like all this dude had to do is read Robert Graysmith's book and just pull out the big parts. Literally, well, I guess, I don't know how big Wikipedia was in 2007. It was definitely around because I wrote a lot of paper from it um, in high school. But that's all this dude had to do was to look up these things. Or uh, I think like um, David Fincher 
did a lot of research on the Zodiac killings himself. So like just pulling from newspapers in real life. So like, I hate to to deny someone credit for hard work, but like this feels like a really, really low hanging fruit. And as much as I love this movie and as like as core to it as it is to the true crime community, there are some things that David Fincher does that like drive me fucking insane. And uh, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's just David Fincher. But still, even this time around when I was watching it, I was like, oh, did you just, you had to do that, didn't you? God, that just irks me so much, but it doesn't matter. I don't think it, it detracts from the movie really at all because I've watched it so many times. I'm really glad you brought up the points about the screenplay because this movie, you know, adapting Graysmith's books was like an ongoing process since he was, since he published them um, for like 10 plus years. So it seemed like a lot of it came down to what studios, how they wanted it to end. That seems to be kind of like, how does this movie end about this unsolved murder? And so I think it's maybe a lot of thinking about this movie was in the pre-production and how it's structured. And then Vanderbilt went in and just kind of filled in what the end goal is going to look like. So just researching the movie was interesting to think about, you know, the crew's mind when structuring this movie and how to tell the story. So I'm excited to get into all those points too, Sam. Have either of you guys read the book? I'm curious to know if it, if the movie really beat by beat follows the structure. Yes, it really does. Yeah. That's good to know. Uh, Christine or Dave, kind of your thoughts on Zodiac. Yeah, I feel like sort of my stance before watching it for the pod tonight was that it's too long. And when you pick Zodiac, I was like, okay, (laughs) here we go. (laughs) It's three hours. Let's go. But then I felt like the pace watching it this time feel it suits the story. I mean, it's a story of many characters It's a story that spans a pretty large time period. And it's a story that that kind of is a game. Like, I kept thinking as I was watching this movie how much it's just about games and spectacle and entertainment. Because I was like, what is this movie really saying? It's an interesting story just because it's like this unknown killer who's just going on killing rampages, but what is the movie really like getting at? It's not really, you know, it's in the seventies, sixties and seventies because of the music and the costumes and the little hints of the time period. But like, it really is just about like all the characters involved in this, this puzzle, uh, this narrative puzzle, also the ciphers that the Zodiac killer presents. And it also kind of implicates the viewer like me in the game itself, because the longer this unfolds, the more invested you get in this story. For me, it wasn't like I was reminded about the horrific killings, but the rest of the movie, I'm like, this is fun to like watch these people solve this mystery. But then the movie presents a new killing and it's like, wait, 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 no, we're talking about real people people really died i still i still think that story treats its characters sort of like maybe like more sort of fairy tale or like kind of it doesn't feel as grounded in reality as i really 
remembered the movie feeling, but it was, it was definitely, um, all that is to say, I liked the length this third time watching. Christine, you know, your point is so interesting because I think that the, if it's a movie for movie's sake, it's too long. And it's kind of boring in some parts, but remembering that like, hey, this was real life. And this is someone's like literal book about their experience with these murders and these people who died. And it brings me back to the conversation, Connor, you and I had about Testament of Youth, which was like my first pick for underrated movies and how we disagreed because you were like, I just wanted more to happen. And you know, when, when, picking movies like this that are so perhaps not grounded in reality but based on reality um it's hard because you might not get what you want and i think that that speaks kind of to the end that we're left with too and you know is an interesting move on david fincher's part of like presenting alan as like the probable dude because if you you know you you do research into it the the officers they're pretty much like yeah it's this guy we just couldn't prove it but to still have something be left like mm, it could be or it couldn't be is like never an ending you really want but like that's how real life is yeah for sure and these are, these are all exactly things i wanted to talk about with zodiacs it's great we're kind of opening with that um dave how about how about you uh i saw someone in the theaters really really liked it that year um i think part of the reason that it is perhaps underrated as far as uh it's an interesting discussion to be had about um about it being underrated. I, I, I felt when you when you pick this one and announced it to the crew, I thought to myself, is this movie really underrated? Because like I know it was such a like a critical darling in 2007, which was like I mean, that year was huge for American cinema. And like some of it's my favorite year in cinema that I know of. And this was a, a, one of the standouts among them, really. But to learn about like it's yeah it's uh it's kind of like uh, it's tepid like a uh, box office response and and stuff like that I, I find really interesting. I, I I went into this thinking like how underrated could I consider this movie to be? It's one that I re- that I really enjoyed the first time around and kind of kind of enjoyed the richness of detail and the efficacy of its execution a little bit more each time. So like you know wh- what more can I really get out of this? But I've never really gone over it with a fine-tooth comb the way that I have in preparing for this episode. And in doing so, uh, I feel at least for me it was underrated because I always considered it to be a very good movie. But in a lot of ways, I think it's near perfect. Um, I think Fincher completely knocks it out of the park with uh, almost entirely functional choices when it comes to uh, the film's editing and direction, the film's uh, tone, the momentum of the movie. It does, it is, it's, it's a movie that you feel is long, but earns it because of the richness of each detail and how long of a story it's necessary to tell um, and how many moving parts and contributors there were to it. So, yeah, I, I, I walk away with it every time thinking this is, I, I like Fincher a lot. I think this is his best work by a pretty wide margin. And um, yeah, for me, for me, I guess it was underrated because I always considered it to be good, really good. But uh, this is this is the time watching this in preparation where I was like, these directorial choices are so functional. This is so thoroughly considered with a handful of exceptions that, uh, yeah, I, I would put this movie near perfect status, but not, but maybe not quite there. So in that sense, yeah, for me, it was 
Well, that makes me happy to hear that you thought that it's also underrated. And it does feel like the peak of, I think, Fincher-isms um, in so many ways. So I'm really excited to kind of uh, dive in and dig deep. So the first point I wanted to talk about, which we've already uh, been discussing, is uh, Zodiac as a true crime film. Um, I'm not really plugged into the true crime community like uh, like Bryce Sam, like you definitely are. Uh, but for me, I really love the different layers of true crime that uh, Zodiac explores. And it feels like a have your cake and eat it too, where you can like Christine really get into the puzzle of it, the game. I mean, Gray Smith loves puzzles. Like that's, he keeps the cipher, the first cipher in his pocket as like a, you know, trying to solve it. And so I think you get the puzzle, you get to like enjoy the mystery of it, but then also the coping and you know, of trying to cope with this mystery, this horrible trauma that's happening to this community um, and the obsession that plagues these folks in different ways, whether it's somebody who's like a writer, somebody like Ray Smith, who you know is not really a writer, but comes into it and kind of loses his family to this case, or the police who are trying to save a community uh, from people who are, you know, from um, the serial killer who are out there. So I think enjoying the game of it, of trying to like figure out who it is and solve it and hunt it and search for clues, and then also dealing with the real kind of feelings and the real ramifications of something like this happening not just over the course of like a summer but over the course of like 15 years i think this movie covers in time but do do we think that the movie actually spends time dealing with the emotional or like especially the emotional fallout for, or not emotional fallout but essentially do we think this movie spends time with the victims and like wrestles with their relationship to this story? Almost none. And I actually think that's a brilliant decision because then you skip the whole, well, they could have spent more time talking about this, more time talking about that. They didn't get this perspective right. They didn't do that. And I think the choice of making the killings like as quick as possible and like not really super the focus is the best decision that David Fincher could have made, I, like truly. And, you know, this is a conversation to have when it comes to true crime all the time, which is like, who should be telling these stories? What should they be saying about the victims? And quite honestly, you know, having your family members death and like the worst part of their life being on a big screen is already so hard. So minimizing it, while also still talking about like, hey, <laughs> these are real things that happened. This guy, like, this is still a mystery. If you're going to do this story, I would rather see it in this way rather than spending too much more time with the victims. Because then I, and, I, and this might sound like like not the right way to think about it, but at least in my perspective, it makes more sense. I totally, no, I totally hear you, Sam. It's just, it's interesting that the movie's tone is so snappy stylish that you know a lot of the dialogue is just a lot of uh sort of quick banter among detectives writers and as a viewer I get really swept up in it and and I think I think it I think you're right Sam that that having that per that angle uh is a very intentional choice and maybe yeah like doesn't have the movie have to handle the complexities of like the other 
aspect of the story, which is how did it impact the lives of people that were killed? Uh, I'm I'm not super true crime literate. I have like a handful of over-invested morbid curiosities of my own. <laughs> but um, yeah, as it applies to Zodiac uh, in general or or just like true crime stories in general, I, 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 I'm not really that qualified to weigh in. But maybe that is perhaps why I don't think of this so much as a true crime movie, which of course it is. But the way that I see it is more as a procedural. It's it's definitely, you know, it's it's more concerned with telling the story of the minutiae, the bureaucracy, the the bureaucratic hurdles and obstacles uh, that were in the way of investigating this situation of uh, departmental and uh, jurisdictional uh, competition uh, and at, at times cooperation, uh, how the press fuels all of that. So it felt to me way more like a procedural than it did the story of the Zodiac in a way, which, yeah, I do really appreciate. Um, I also really appreciate the way that the violence and the killings are handled in this movie. And it's a pretty stylized movie throughout, but it really, when it is, it's most minimalistic. It's chillingly so because it is in those moments where we're seeing these killings. Like I, I imagine like, I can't, I can't imagine someone else handling this material as a director. Cause like you hand this over to like, say like, I, this is a pretty extreme counter example, but like in the, in the hands of like someone like Quentin Tarantino, imagine how these killing scenes go. But with Fincher, there's there's an unflinching, not 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 banality because they're they're stirringly upsetting every time, but perhaps because they're so uh, ingratuitous, they they're very matter of fact, they're very cold, very unflinching, and very uh, very tactile in a way that doesn't feel heightened. Um, and I think that that's a really smart move on his part. Uh, and I, I think front loading them in the beginning of a movie that becomes about the case itself, a procedural rather than these victim stories uh, does a service to, uh, it's, it's kind of the only way you can stick that landing, I, I would say. It definitely, I, I totally agree, Dave, that that in Fincher's hands, it, there's this essential kind of like balance uh, with of keeping it Fincher-esque snappy, moving, 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 mm-hmm. great soundtrack, but at the same time, a lot of sound is pulled away and like, you've got the the killing scenes that are some implied some you really do see someone get stabbed to death in a horrifying manner but it doesn't linger necessarily on like the gruesomeness of the scene it's like a short but brutal interaction yeah yeah and you're like holy shit and then it's that, and then that it's, main that conveys the gravity and depth and, and severity of it but without lingering yeah it doesn't right. it doesn't invite your gaze. It's it's something that you feel you shouldn't see and in that way is functionally upsetting. But it but there's the moments though. I'm thinking of the killing of the couple right by the or actually no, the the guy that ultimately survives, the couple right by the lake. Uh and the whole build up to that killing is is really unsettling um as they see the zodiac killer kind of like rounding the hill there. Terrifying but, scene, yeah. But but there's some dialogue moments that like give it this like some humor where where the guy's just talking at like the one the boyfriend or whatever is talking at the killer essentially trying to just like engage in any way he can in this panic state and then the girlfriend is like uh you know he's a sociology major and then the guy goes oh actually pre-law and and so you know it's it's corny but but there's these moments of humor and then it feels though an intentional choice on the script's part 
of like kind of like luring you in with sort of the, these comedic inflections and then completely pivoting to something absolutely horrific. And I find it as a way to kind of be like, you know, you want to watch this. You're laughing. There's some moments of humor and it pull in it like essentially, as I said, like implicates us as a viewer being like, I got to see this. This is part of the game. I need to figure out who this is. Well, I would ask beyond that one specific moment of alleged humor in the killing sequences. Can you think of another? Uh, maybe I'm pairing that with the humor that's throughout, like essentially the quippy, the tone of the uh, of the dialogue, probably more in the newspaper and uh, detective mm-hmm. scenes. Uh, I'll think about it, though. But I just remember thinking in that moment, knowing what was going to happen and just feeling the sense of dread and then kind of like laughing at dialogue that would be situated in a whole other type, like in a sketch, you know, in a sketch or something. And I just kept thinking about the idea of like the spect, like spectacle and watching this unfold and getting invested in it from like a puzzle solvers perspective, not from a person that like is, is trying to sort of like care about the people that are being killed. I mean, I cared about the people that are being killed, but like part of the me as a viewer was also like, Ooh, I want to like do the cipher. I want to like, you know, be a part of this, this mystery that's unfolding. Well, then the movie did its job because that's how the the first cipher is figured out, right? That that couple figures it out, and then the 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 second cipher was done in 2020 by like retired police, military, kind of like armchair detectives. But Christine, something I did want to mention is that in the particular scene you were referencing, some of that dialogue is what the victims remember. So, like, it might sound like odd. Because, like, they probably don't remember everything exactly. They remember it in bits and pieces, but, like, some of it's real. Yeah, and I think all of this, as we've been talking about, contributes to the real feel of this uh, movie. I mean, Fincher grew up in the Bay Area and so remembers being on his school bus for weeks with highway patrolmen following the bus because Zodiac threatened to shoot out tires and kill children as they leave the school bus, which in... I feel like 2022 has a very different context than 2007. Like, I just feel like that feels a little different than when I first watched the company you know, many years ago. And so I think it's kind of like these really horrible things, but how we as people are like coping with these um, really horrible events. And for the folks at the Chronicles, this is first starting. This is like a faraway event. Um, this is something that's just happening out in Vallejo. It's happening miles away from downtown San Francisco. Um, But as the killings go on, eventually Zodiac threatens Paul Avery, um, and that really disrupts his life in a pretty fundamental way. So I think it's interesting of we're seeing people, and just because so much of this is based on reality, Sam, as you mentioned, that really elevates this movie from just, we're going to get the bad guy to like these feel like realer people, in addition to like a lot of the production choices that Fincher and his team made as well. You know, like something I wish that I don't I don't think it was this movie's place to to have this conversation, but something I would love to to watch like a documentary or movie on is police detectives, whoever, just like like regular civilians at this time, because like this is and I hate to I hate to say this, but like the golden era of serial killing. Right. Because like this is when 
all of the big names are are active the 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 late 60s early 70s and even like into the the early 80s and so just to be police at this time and like some of the some of the places that you hear in this movie and in this like story are places for the golden state killer or places for like some of the other people and it's like to be alive in this time to have the job of a police officer like a cow but like at at this time jesus that sucks and Dave, the point that you brought up of this film, looking at the like proceduralness of like, how did in 1969, how did you try to catch somebody who killed people in three different jurisdictions? And how do you report on this when these things are happening far away, pre-email, cell phone, et cetera? And I think that is a super interesting angle to look at the policing in this movie. And uh, Dave Tashi, who's a really famous, you know, in this case made him really famous. Um, and I just think his lens, like it's interesting how this movie starts, the really compelling opening scene of the young couple, the first young couple who's killed, um, who's attacked, um, the guy survives, uh, and then kind of adding characters into it and ballooning it into this huge sprawling mystery and then paring down. And I just think like those elements really speak to me. And that's some of the funny stuff too. Like my, uh, Alyssa, my wife and I, we were chuckling in our seats of like, oh, well, Vallejo didn't give this to me. Oh, well, Napa didn't give that to me. Oh, well, we don't have a fax to me. You don't have a fax to me. Like that Fincher, very quick editing. It's, it's horrible, but it's also funny at how ridiculous it is. And I think that's part of Fincher's real skill as a director. Um, and he's, you know, an editor as well. Like, you know, he just has a really great sense of editing too, of like, how do you, what is the pace that these things need to be set at to have sometimes darkly comedic values or to be ultra serious and just really silence the room? I think he's really skilled at kind of navigating these human emotions. Well, and speaking to that, yeah, and the scope of this story and how many moving parts and characters there are, I mean, there's, there's so many really clever, intentional choices that keep you engaged with all the different characters, like the choice to have so many different people read the Zodiac letters and, and that muddying the water too, of like, it, instead of a voiceover, it preserves the anonymity, which is a great, but subtle functional choice, but also just how conversations, uh, like completing conversation, full conversations via intersecting vantage points, like illustrating how it's become a captivating curiosity to all of our principal players because they're all kind of having the same conversation. They're all sort of swept up in this and that leading us through it in a way that doesn't feel like exposition because it feels like it's just on the tip of everyone's tongue naturalistically is, is great stuff. And you're totally right, Dave. Uh, you've got, you're introduced to so many different characters and you as the viewer are following each one of them through their lines of reasoning and as they're receiving more clues and as the Zodiac is killers sending out letters, the same types of messages to multiple departments and newspapers and stuff. And then it's a wonderful reminder that the characters you've become familiar with don't even know each other until halfway or two thirds of the way. Like when Jake Gyllenhaal's character uh, introduces himself to Mark Ruffle, you know, like, and we're already like an hour in, you're like, wait a second. These characters don't know each other yet, but we feel like already invested in their story. And so I just think that even though maybe, you know, an hour 20 in, you're like, okay, they've got to figure something out by now. What keeps, I think, the pace is the characters actually starting to intersect. And even if we know, you know, it'll be unresolved, it really feels like it's kind of meeting 
and that characters are beginning to connect and talk to one another. It's like a true crime Rashomon. Well, Dave, that's a great transition to the next point that I wanted to bring up, and that uh, and that is uh, discussing some of the really stellar performances in Zodiac. Uh, David Fincher is known for being a very demanding director at times. Uh, one of my favorite kind of anecdotes I saw um, was on the first day that they were filming in San Francisco. Uh, Fincher had, uh, there was a, maybe it was the scene where they're rough, Mark Ruffalo and Jake Gyllenhaal are on the bench talking. Um, that scene took 57 takes and Fincher said he used the 56th one um, in the final cut. Are so, you kidding me? A director would only say that to justify 56 takes, like, or 57 or whatever. So I say that, that this is, you know, a very known thing that he's very demanding director, but the dude gets really amazing performances out of the people who are in his movies usually. Um, And Zodiac is just wall to wall excellent performances at all times did you guys have a favorite was there one performance that was really kind of stand out whether from like a leading character or uh more of a side character john carroll lynch yes yeah i mean this movie is yeah connor as you said wall-to-wall character actors and incredible performances uh gyllenhaal and downey jr and ruffalo are per pitch perfect casting for their individual parts but just on the periphery, everyone else. I mean, it's just a suite of awesome character actors and actresses. You have um, uh, Brian Cox turning in one of my favorite performances in the film. Uh, you have uh, Philip Baker Hall crushing it as this sort of alcoholic handwriting analyst. You have Chloe Sevigny totally knocking it out of the park, as always. But at the end of the day, John Carroll Lynch's performance is so haunting. I think he may be, I mean... He, like so many people like think of, oh, John Carroll Lynch, isn't he the guy that melts in Volcano? And there's something to be said about that because, you know, he's so good that that's the most memorable scene in that movie. But also he's just, yeah, he's super underrated. He's a fantastic actor and he really makes this role feel in a way, in a way that does not validate um, the note. I, I mean, it, it pretty aggressively hints toward the suspicion that he was actually the Zodiac. Um, there's no denying that in Phil's presentation. Uh, but it's also, you know, it it doesn't feel as though uh, it it completely confirms that through his behavior, while still making him menacing. So like, it, it's a real weird tenuous balance that I I I don't know who else he could have gotten other than John Carroll Lynch that could have uh, could have exemplified um, what is it Arthur Lee Allen with quite as much menace and tenacity, but also you know. Uh, because John Carroll is a great actor, and I think the screenplay is really good. Uh, uh, an underlying humanity that's undeniable, but but just also still a, a wall of menace. Uh, and Christine, as you brought up, we don't you know our our characters don't really meet for sometimes long stretches of the movie. It'll be an hour plus before people are interacting with each other or introduced to somebody new. And I love that we don't meet Arthur Allen Lee, who the film insinuates is the real Zodiac even though DNA didn't match, but we can maybe get into that later. Mm. Um, and so we don't meet him. I think it's like one hour, 40 minutes, 50. It's like pretty, it's more than halfway till we meet kind of the prime suspect. And that is just a knockout scene in a film that's filled with head on shots. Nothing. There's many complicated shots, but a lot of the movies just kind of straight on camera and the turn 
that uh, Lee does in the interview when he can tell that the three detectives interviewing him at his workplace, they know something. They're figuring in the turn that you see. It's not even a gesture. It's more of like a feeling. I, I'm very bad at describing characters sometimes, but it's just that turn. And I think Fincher does a really great job of showing that in that scene and all throughout the movie. And the choice, so I feel like in many uh, procedurals or mysteries, it's like the story goes one of two routes. One is mystery, 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 clues, 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 and then final climax is when we are introduced to who who did it. You know, or it's like one interview sets up who the character is, but you don't know anything till the end. The other route is you do know who a killer is through most of the story, but it's like game of, you know, cat and mouse kind of thing. And then it's all about how these two face off. But I think the inconclusiveness of this story in real life and the fact that they interviewed him, but the story keeps going is, I mean, it's how the story was, but I think from a, from a narrative standpoint, I think having that interview be nestled right in the middle of the movie where it's not the climax because they can't arrest him, they can't, or they can't, you know, find any evidence to 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 charge him on or even get a warrant, and it just continues to move on. I think that's just such an interesting way to uh, to have the have the story unfold. And you're meeting him. There's a pivotal interview, but you've still got like a third to a half movie left. Uh, as as the detectives basically have to like either sustain that mo- momentum or move on. And I'm sure we'll talk about the basement scene, which is such an important scene too, but it's kind of like, ooh, how does that fit in with everything else uh, in, within the rest of the story? But It's also an amazing, yeah, amazing credit to to Fincher, his his editor, and the screenplay too. The the build up to this interview that we're talking about, very quick cuts of them talking to people that are are claiming to know about the Zodiac or or be the Zodiac falsely, and that's very fast. That flies by to illustrate that there is such a deluge of like false information. And then it, everything slows down when we get to that interview to the point that like it pays attention to like it pays such an acute attention through its editing and its performance to like body language and saying things without exposition and uh, just the consciousness of that choice to pair the, to sandwich those two together to have this like it, it, it really imparts the import of like this th- this interview and this scene and this sequence because it is presaged by like a rapid fire presentation of like false information and nonsense but then we slow down to take this in so it's really illustrative of a of a of a valid potential lead in this case yeah the watch the boot every you're like everything's coming together and then also the fact that that movie that scene being in the middle of the movie and then everything unraveling when it's like oh wait it checks all of these boxes and then the, the handwriting not matching is really what completely mm-hmm. unravels everything. And also the one line, oh my God, as uh, Alan's being interviewed and he just, uh, unprompt, totally unprompted, they've not asked about this, it's just, oh, the knives in my car. Yeah. And they all kind of look at each other like, Jesus Christ, this is a done deal, right? 
And then bringing up the book or the movie, A Most Dangerous Game. And then that had been like a really key, key reference that the Zodiac Killer had written about. And he's just like laying these out on the table. And you're like, oh, God. And I really can't know how true the film is to that actual interview. But from a screenwriting perspective, it's fantastic. Great scene. One other standout scene that I wanted to get into was, uh, I, I just can't remember the character's name, but the um, woman who has the child, the baby in the front seat. Um, mm. I think that is, I, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't remember the character's name or the actress who played her, but that is, I think, such a great kind of like roller coaster of emotion of just like a smaller character in a pretty long scene of like just a nut, something else that the Zodiac's doing, but uh, I think just a really great, I don't know, that scene just always sticks with me. If he pulls, of somebody pulling, flashing somebody over, so oh, your tires are coming loose. And then just actually loosening them. It's like, oh, this is like 1971. Like, no, just go away. Your car's fine. You know, no one's, no one's really going to help you. Um, also super interesting, too, in the sense that, like, it's been really difficult for historians to pin down whether or not that was actually the Zodiac who did that, which makes it all the more interesting. Like, it's really illustrating that, the fear of this has really captured that entire area. So whether or not, whether this was like some incidental situation where it was just unconnected, it's immediately being associated with the Zodiac. And this movie is just filled with such small scenes like this, that instead of having it just be on the cops who are on the hunt or the one cartoonist who turns true crime podcaster to solve it, it's really <laughs> enveloping a community. And so through these kind of whether the victims of Zodiac or people who intersect with him, um, the newscasters, um, Brian Cox's character. I think there are so many great small scenes with really solid performances that help sell that this is impacting a whole community. Yeah. And what's interesting is like the Zodiac, what has seven confirmed victims, uh, five of which who were actually killed. But I think one of the last letters that they suspect the Zodiac sent. It was like his kill count. He, he said it was up to 37. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the movie by presenting some possible moments, like Dave, like you're saying, just goes to show you how fucking chaotic this actually was. And again, going back to like, I want to know what it was like to be people living at this time in these areas to be the actual police officers. And so like, like I could sit here forever reading and watching these things. Another great example of that, Sam, if you're interested in that taut environment and like sense of paranoia in the face of a serial killer spree, uh, Spike Lee's 1999 Summer of Sam is uh, another fantastic example of this. I'll have to watch that because uh, obviously it doesn't have to do with the son of Sam. Mm -hmm. But it, has, it, it does. But it, that's sort of like a sub element. It's more about the environment of fear and paranoia that gripped the city. That's yeah, I'll definitely check it out. Um, I have watched uh, a couple times now the documentary on Netflix about the the sons of Sam and how like David Berkowitz is probably like not what everybody thinks he is and what they all said. So thank you. And I think I, Dave, you touched on this earlier. Um, I think it's also does a great job of uh, talking about the 
role that newspapers, television, and sort of the art of performance plays in this story. I mean, you've got the performance of televising this call that's supposed to be coming in to Brian Cox's character over the phone. You've got the performance of copycats calling in and pretending to be the Zodiac. And then you, you've you just got like the, the newspaper spectacle, like the, the constant question and the questioning of what to tell the public and what to not tell the public, what's going to help our investigation, what's going to hurt it, what's going to sensationalize what we're trying to work on. And it's kind of like all of their choices did all of the above. Yes, publicizing in the newspaper drew attention to the Zodiac Killer, created a spectacle of what he was doing, probably further encouraging, maybe not, you know, he was probably going to keep killing no matter what, but it was definitely like focusing. He wanted attention for it. And I just love the way the movie incorporates uh, broadcast television and uh, newspapers, incorporates those elements into how, you know, how it disseminated information, but also created this, this dramatic spectacle. And how that permeates too, even into like Dave Toskey's character, uh, Mark Ruffalo, who is, you know, by the end is, is so frustrated with this case and, and, while still being so deeply invested that he has to put the public face on it of like, as he, especially as he's talking to uh, Gyllenhaal's character, um, sorry, Grayson? Gray Smith or Gray? Gray Smith, sort of like telling him like, look, this is over for me. Like, I'm not into this anymore, blah, blah, blah. But then every time Gyllenhaal brings him a little bit more information that brings him in a little bit deeper, you can see that he's putting on a performance of disengagement because it's necessary because this case is stymied, but it's still captivating him it's still part of what drives him he just can't engage with it in the way that uh gray smith can so that that push and pull also with uh, uh toski is really really interesting it really develops that character as much as i love so many parts of this movie this time rewatching, i found myself so gripped by um the gray smith jake gyllenhaal's part toward the back half of the movie of him kind of like his whole life unraveling as he becomes more and more obsessed with Zodiac, uh, gets his kids to like track down theories for him about killings during like lunar episodes. The secret project. Yeah. The don't secret, tell don't. Mom. <laughs> and the movie kind of checks out from Gray Smith for a very long time, just touching on him briefly here or there. And then really the last about 30, 40 minutes is really his story about how he loses a lot, kind of falls down this rabbit hole. Um, and I think he really succumbs to that, to, to the obsession and the push and pull, which leads to, it's so hard to pick a favorite scene, but when he goes to visit um, Bob Vaughn. Yeah, that's house. the one. Um, this movie does such a great job of setup and payoff throughout all of it, um, whether that's through writing or through visual presentation, but this basement scene um has it all and if you've seen zodiac and you've probably even seen this if you wrote like top 10 scenes movie scenes the past 20 years or something you know, this is um up there so gray smith robert gray smith he tracks on all these clues he misses you know he's picking apart things that the police missed because they got a million tips and couldn't possibly sift through everything um and so he goes to bob vaughn's house who is connected to another kind of person who could be zodiac um for a truly uh harrowing scene as Gray Smith realizes he's in a bit too deep, which I think maybe 
it could be a dream for some true crime aficionados today of like you're actually kind of getting yourself involved in the case which is such like for me a horrifying fantasy um like also a really not very ethical <laughs> and not very ethical at all but he gets himself um kind of trapped in here i love this especially the lines like oh well, i have these film canisters in my basement um and then jake jill goes not many people in california have basements and that's i believe the third time that sentence has been said uh commenting on the lack of basements in california it's like oh come on you're come on follow me down gray smith um and the lighting is set up so perfectly as you're like oh like this eerie lighting and the whole time we haven't really touched on this but lighting plays such a huge part of fincher's vision for this movie um we don't see zodiac's face we get pretty close to seeing different parts of his face but this scene gives me chills when um bob vaughn steps out of the turns the light off and you just see oh i wonder if what was the name of the movie? The the most dangerous game inspired Zodiac. And it's the exact same lighting that we've seen Zodiac in. And that just gives me chills every time. And yeah, the creaking upstairs, uh, the attention of the camera looking at the floorboards to illustrate that that's where that's coming from. The sense of space, the sense of being trapped in a basement in a house with someone you can't trust who may be, uh, it's looking pretty questionable. It's looking pretty scary. And then you hear someone else upstairs. I mean, there's moments in this movie toward the end, like especially in his third act, Connor, as you're mentioning, that honestly feel like they're pulled from a horror movie rather than a true crime or procedural, which is great. Well, they are. It's like you have two basement scenes that are iconic. This one in Silence of the Lambs, you know? And, like, <laughs> and so... And Blair Witch. And, okay, yeah. But like... But it's but what's so great about I mean maybe in the case of Blair Witch since you don't know whatever I would say that's, a, that's an outlier yeah comparing this to Silence of the Lambs Silence of the Lambs story you're like this is a basement scene where you know you're reaching the end and the kill like she's gonna like figure this out or she's gonna you know fight her way through this uh, but in the case of this Zodiac story. It's going to be inconclusive. And it turns out that that guy is just some random person, right? Like, uh, it, Or does it? But, it's inconclusive. Okay. But I feel like the, the, the scene drives home this idea of like, like life imitating art. It, it's like, it's like, it's so cinematic because it's horrifying and it's like comes right out of a horror movie. And it almost feels like it's Fincher being like, this was real, but also all of the players involved in many cases felt themselves part of something that felt like a cinematic, I don't know, cinematic story. At least that's how I read that scene. Like, it's not like an actual lead, but it's like this sort of meeting of real story and the desire for a horrifying and compelling movie, essentially. That's a great explanation because, yeah, shortly after this scene, he goes to visit someone who knew the first victim and um, is urging her toward this conclusion that it is this guy, Rick, who is uh, in, in conjunction with this guy from the basement. And it's like, no, I know it's him because I had this threatening, menacing experience. And she's like, no, it was. And I, I, I like her defiance of it, too, that it gives it, it pushes back against his like predetermined hypothesis. And it's just like, no, that's not right. You're missing this detail. And she tells him it, and it winds up being the thing that leads them more toward Alan in a really 
well scripted scene with um Toski and um and Gray Smith in the diner when he, he's he's breaking it down. That really chilling line of like they were door to door and that whole thing. Uh that it is probably more convincingly Lee than it, it was um Rick Baker? Uh the other Marshall. Rick Marshall, Marshall. The other the other yeah the other suspected the other suspected uh person that he was investigating. But it calls attention to yeah that he is he's simultaneously like thrusting himself into this narrative as an investigator and it's also way in over his head because in a moment where it ultimately probably was nothing he got spooked by it and that's really interesting and that's such a human thing that we just scare ourselves into like these things like that i think for me that's what's so effective about that scene is we scare ourselves all the time over analyzing too anxious Uh, I mean, as people, we want to connect dots. We want to put pieces together. Like, that's just hardwired into our brains as animals. Um, And I think through Graysmith, we see what happens when you try to force too many square pegs into round holes, which I think happened, at least just from what I've seen of, like, internet sleuthing kind of things, like putting pieces, you know, trying to put pieces together where they don't go together. And sometimes you find great clues and then sometimes you're trying to force conclusions because you do want a tidy outcome. You know, everybody wants this case to be solved. Everybody wants the victims, families to find peace. Uh, But that's not, that's not life. That's not reality. Um, And I think that Fincher does a great job tapping into that, that fear and that want. Um, And then what happens when you just try to push too far, push too hard. Sam just brought up a great question who we think Fincher actually got to play the Zodiac killer during those scenes. Cause it's kind of like a movie secret, you know, it's like, who does the movie think it is? I mean, I think the movie thinks it's probably Vaughn or oh, not Vaughn. Uh, uh, Alan, 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 Alan. Yeah, I agree with that. But I do, uh, yeah, I, I was trying really hard to pay attention this time and like pick out who they had as like the like obscured through darkness or shadow stand in of what we know to be the Zodiac actually committing these acts. And it looks a bit like John Carroll Lynch, but it also doesn't like I'm uh, there's an ambiguity there that I think is pretty fantastic. And like, I, I appreciate that it's not like visibly him. And I appreciate that it's a shadow figure onto which we can project whomever we suspect, which is kind of the whole point of the investigation up to a point. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know if that was actually John Carroll Lynch uh, carrying out like those, uh, those killing scenes as they occur, but I'm pretty sure it's not, uh, which but 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 it could just as convincingly be the ambiguity is really important and it's a really smart choice. Just like like I said earlier, like the, n- never having a voiceover of his own writing, it's always someone else reading it. There's never a confirmation in this movie, even though it, it does feel pretty slanted in its uh its conclusions. It, it never quite confirms that. I think so. I want I watch everything with subtitles and so the voiceovers as they happen as you know the letters are being read says zodiac one zodiac two zodiac three and so watching it this time i feel like that they use different actors that just was my gut reaction especially with the car scene that i was talking about like that just looks like a totally different person than the Mm -hmm. other obscured ones so i didn't do any research into this so this was just gut reaction it just felt like that there were 
at least what felt like two to three different actors playing the obscured face Zodiac. And during the lake murder scene, it just says Zodiac uh, in the closed captioning. And it's also the kind of thing where at the end of the day, we don't know how many people the Zodiac, the quote unquote Zodiac killed. It might've been one murder. Like these could have easily been things that were interconnected only through the claim of, of a person who either committed one murder or none, you know, it's yeah. This there is kind of an unknowable case in that way. There could have been two Zodiacs too. Like you just don't know for sure. Or copycats or just uh, someone connecting crimes that they uh, had some information on and claim credit for, for attention. The, yeah. That ambiguity is really maintained in this movie, which is why it's so satisfying because that, that is true to the story. We don't know. We'll probably never know. And that, should be the way the story's told. And for a movie that's a murder mystery, it's there's no big cathartic payoff. Really, I, I've been thinking a lot about this. Like, what is the emo- like, what is the climax of the movie? And ultimately, the emotional climax is when Robert Graysmith goes to the Ace Hardware store in Vallejo mm-hmm. uh, and sees Arthur Allen Lee standing there, and he tells... Um, tells his wife earlier, like, I just need to know who it is, which I think is an impulse that we all have felt over unknown mysteries and atrocities. Um, just need to know who he is. I need to look him in the eye and just have, I think he says, have him say, I am Zodiac or, but he goes to the hardware store. It's like I need to and, look him in the eyes and know that it's him. Right. Yeah. And what a great, after a movie that's so complex, so buff with great characters and many moving plot lines to just hone in on a look of one character who we spent the past 40 minutes with in the beginning is like such a, uh, whether that was Fincher, Vanderbilt, whoever's Graysmith in his book, um, that was a real, like that having be the emotional payoff is so subtle, but I think on rewatch really just blows me away more and more. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's just, it's a very quiet scene. It's just, uh, him suspecting it and looking at Lynch, uh, John Carroll Lynch playing Alan. Alan kind of giving him this look back of not necessarily individual recognition, but like recognition that he's looking at him in a way. And that being kind of like a transactional thing uh, between the two of them. And that kind of being enough for Grace Smith, that's ultimately when the story ends because he, he's got his book, he's done the best he can. Maybe that's not his guy. Maybe he feels it is, but something about that look is is enough for him at the end. And Christine, going back to a concept you love, ambiguous endings. I think this is like an, a really spectacular example of an ambiguous ending. I do love me a good ambiguous ending. <laughs> true, true. Well, we've covered pretty much everything that I have in my notes. Are there any um, kind of final moments or scenes or... Uh, ideas that we want to touch on as we're kind of winding down. One last little thing that I'll add is that um, Robert Downey Jr., again, he's fantastic in this movie, I think. He has he has the particular kind of like very dry, quick wit that I associate with a very good friend of mine, especially via the uh, this one exchange at the end of the movie when he's going to visit. He's seeing Downey, um, Paul Avery, after he's descended uh, at the hands of both rampant alcoholism and being consumed by and haunted by the Zodiac case, uh, there's just this, this one really funny exchange of just um, uh, Jill and Hall s- saying to him, somebody should write a book. And then Downey just cuts him off and just, somebody should write a fucking book. That's for sure. That line that gets line me every time. <laughs> just like the notion, yeah, somebody should write a book. 
I just I just read that apparently the characterization of Downey's character is quite fictionalized, that he didn't go into this like alcohol-fueled uh reclusive life that <laughs> didn't go on was, to live on a houseboat. He yeah. did not go on to live in a houseboat in his uh uh bathrobe and you know, like a bottle of vodka or whatever. But it felt like it it totally felt like Robert Downey Jr. was like Fincher. All right. I I I know I got an idea for this character. He probably just let Downey do whatever he wanted with this character. I heard some strange things today that I can't substantiate, so don't quote me on this. But someone was telling me today that like Robert Downey Jr. was kind of a menace on set and didn't get along with Fincher to the point that he left Ooh. like jars of piss around and stuff like that. Wow, that's... I'm not going to talk out of school. I don't know if any of this is true. Someone brought it up to me today, and I just thought to myself, well, that's strange. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't surprise me that he might be a combative presence on a film set. I don't know. What's Fincher like? Maybe Fincher's a nightmare to work with. Who knows? You know, with 50 takes per scene, okay, yeah, maybe Fincher's the problem. Um, I did find a great quote on Wikipedia and just doing, you know, just the research um, in Zodiacs. This is from... Uh, Robert Downey Jr. So he says, I just decided, and this is in reference to like Fincher's um, directorial style and shooting nature. Um, I just decided aside from several times I wanted to garrot him. So that's like piano wire. Mm -hmm. um, That I was going to give him what he wanted. I think I'm a perfect person to work for him because I understand gulags. So that was um, his approach to working with David Fincher and his notoriously demanding um, directorial style. Holy smokes. Well, I think that's all I have for Zodiac. Um, thank you so much, Butter Crew, for watching this long, but sounds like very rewarding rewatch for everybody. Um, it's been really fun thinking about underrated movies and kind of thinking about the past four years. So thanks to all of our listeners. Um, we've picked up some new ones over the past year or so. So thank you to everybody who tunes in to listen to us. Thank you to the movie John podcast network. So many terrific podcasts as a part of our little network family. So be sure to check all them out. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram at butter with that or butter with that one on Twitter. Uh, and please send us an email, butterwiththatpodcast at gmail.com. Who do you think the Zodiac is? That's what I want to hear um, <laughs> via our email channels. Um, I think it's Ted Cruz. And then also, um, has anyone listened to the Formula One podcast yet? Remember how that was like a joke that we kept like, gonna listen to it. Ha- has anyone done it? The F1, F, yeah? No, I'm not. Yeah. Yeah, no. Uh, although, yeah, yeah. We will. I would check will. that out. I'm gonna check that out. I'm gonna check that out. I don't know anything about Formula One racing, but I'm looking forward to learning. Then we can watch Ford versus Ferrari, even though that's not Formula One, but we can still. Oh, is, Days of, is Days of Thunder Formula One? Ooh, we can watch Days of Thunder. Isn't there a Chris Hemsworth sure movie where he's a Formula One driver? We'll have to get them on the show and ask. <laughs> oh my God, should we do car racing theme? Yes. We can watch Herbie Fully Loaded. We can watch Days of Thunder. We can watch Ford versus Ferrari and Cars. Mad Max. Mad Max. We can watch Mad Max. Yeah. Got it. We got four ready to go in the bag. Listeners, do you want us to talk about cars? A subject I know almost <laughs> nothing about. 
yeah. email in let us know we can bump that up to the to closer to the top if you want but truck for long-time month. listeners of butter truck month oh i like that <laughs> Uh, for longtime listeners, we've got one more underrated pick for you and then a pretty exciting theme. So if you stuck all the way through this, you're going to really like what we have in store after underrated movies, especially for longtime listeners of the podcast. Thank you so much for listening, supporting the Movie John Podcast Network, and have a good whatever. Does anybody have any animal crackers? <laughs> Fucking animal crackers. This has been a Movie John podcast.